up. We're going to be in this book over the next six weeks, today and then like five more weeks after today. And we're going to break it up into six sessions, and then guess what happens right after Malachi? Christmas, right? Advent. And we'll be doing a Christmas series. Um, I would encourage you, if you don't have one already, to find an Advent calendar and study now. Uh, because before you know it, boom, it's going to be too late, and you'll miss out. Uh, I, I'm not getting sponsored by any means to plug this, but I just purchased the Advent Study from the Daily Grace Co. So if you're unfamiliar with the Daily Grace Co., I encourage you to uh, look them up. And there is a great Advent Study for men and women and also for children. So uh, dailygraceco.com, you can look them up. Advent calendar, Advent study, get ready for that time of the year with your kids, with your wife, with your husband, or even by yourself. Uh, But until then, we're going to be going through this book written by the prophet Malachi. Malachi was written about 450-ish years. They, They speculate exactly 440 or 480 years. So we're going to say approximately 450 years before Christ. If you notice, it goes from Malachi straight to Jesus' birth in Matthew. Uh, The intertestament period of time, which happens from the end of Malachi to Jesus' birth, is roughly 400 years, give or take 420, 430. So God did not speak through his prophets or to his people directly for those 400 plus years. Now, does that mean that time stood still? No, by no means. People still worship the Lord, people still sacrifice, but God did not speak directly through a prophet or through anyone. Now you're going to read people that say, well, the Maccabees or the Apocrypha, those are great writings maybe to, to use or to read, but they are not scripture, therefore we can't reference them and, and build any kind of foundation or doctrine on them. Uh, but you can read about the history during this intertestament period of time, like I said, about 400 years. So what we're going to do today is we're going to discuss for a few minutes the love of God. The Bible tells us that God is love. Now, let me ask you, if you were to go to work for the next three weeks, what would you expect to happen after you go to work on time and do your job? Get paid, right? Get paid, bringing home the bacon, right? Or... I'm putting money in the bag, whatever, whatever's cool these days, you know, getting my bag or whatever. Um, now, let me just ask you, if you didn't go to work for the next three weeks and you didn't call out, uh, what would happen? You'd get fired, right? Or you wouldn't get paid. So I ask that because you and I, we live in a society that is based on our own performance and the performance that we do is what brings forth good, or the lack thereof brings forth bad. So if I choose not to go to work, I can't get upset when I don't get paid or when I don't have a job. And whenever we fail in areas of our life, what we do is we expect things sometimes to just come to us. It's if you were to not love your spouse, like God calls you to love your spouse, you can't be upset whenever there's a lack of communication, right? Uh, you can't be upset whenever they do one thing and you do something and everybody's mad at each other all the time if, if you do not love your spouse. Now, if you do love your spouse, like God's called you to, and you do sacrifice, you can expect a healthy relationship. So what we want to do right out of the gate is uh, 
just for a little bit, discuss the love of God for his people. And that's what we're going to do right here at the beginning. And I don't want us to, and we'll discuss it here in a little bit, the performance-driven society that we live in can sometimes affect the way we view God's love. So let's get, let's get to work. Malachi chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, which is translated and means my messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Lastly, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What is that? Hmm? Hearing aid. Um, so here we are. God addresses his people. And what you're going to see as you read the book of Malachi, which is only four chapters, very short read, only take you about 10 minutes or so, depending on how quickly you read, you're going to see six conversations that God has with his people. And first, out of the gate, he addresses the love that he's had for his people. If you know the story here, these people have returned from exile. Remember the prophet Haggai? Remember that? Whenever they rebuilt the temple and, and they were all upset because they were rebuilding it and it looked so little and so cheap in comparison to the former temple that was destroyed. And here they are, they're coming out of exile, they're living, um, and we're, like I said, about 450 years before Christ, so they've been out of exile for a little bit and they begin to wander and then God saves them. Over the course of the Old Testament, you see God's people rebel. He delivers them. They live in obedience. They rebel. God delivers them. And here, God is addressing the love that he's had for them all along. And they ask God, how have you loved us? What's the proof that you love us? And he uses two names. Remember the Esau and Jacob story? If you, if you don't know the story, I'm going to give it to you in about two minutes. Jacob and Esau were brothers, born at the exact same time. Esau was the older, and when Jacob was born, he actually came out of the womb, grabbing onto the heel, which would be very important in the imagery of what would happen later in life, grabbing onto the heel of his brother Esau. In this day, Esau being the older brother, by just a, you know, a few seconds, was in line to be the chosen one. Anybody ever live with that sibling? You know your parents chose them more than you. You know, they were the chosen one. They got everything. But, but this is literally how they live. Esau was to receive the birthright. He was to receive the blessing from his father. Yet, if you read the story, Jacob manipulates his brother to sell his birthright for soup. And then he manipulates his father who is blind and can't see his, his, his sons. He actually uh, is such a deceiver that he deceives his father into believing that it's Esau as he begins to bless him right before he dies. So if you, if you don't know the story, they're, they're brothers, they're, 
you know, born at the same time. Esau is supposed to be the older and the chosen and the one to receive the blessing. Yet Jacob deceives Esau. Then Jacob deceives his father Isaac. And then Jacob is the one that is blessed. Now, here we see that God loved Jacob, but did what to Esau? Hated him. Now, if you read the rest of the story, Jacob was a deceiver, manipulator. Uh, Esau married Canaanite women, which was against God's will for him. They both did horribly wrong in the sight of God. Yet God chose to love Jacob. So here's what I want to do. I want to kind of address our understanding of what God's love is and what it isn't. When we say we love things... What are some things you love? Just think to, to yourself for just a moment. What are some things you love? You love coffee, sports, shopping, good food, hmm? Taco Tuesday. We love, you know, when it's cold outside so we can be cuddled up together on the couch, you know, and, and watch our favorite movies and drink on our coffee, right? The things that you love. But here's the thing. If we aren't careful, we will associate the way we love things with the way that God loves us. And and God's love, whenever you read throughout the scripture, it's never connected to a feeling. It's never a feeling. It's always how God, by loving people, extends mercy and grace to unworthy people. Jacob was completely unworthy of God's mercy, yet God lavished his mercy upon Jacob. So when it says God loved Jacob, he didn't have this tingling feeling whenever he saw Jacob, like, oh man, this guy is really special. No, he loved him by extending mercy to him, even though he was undeserving of it. So whenever I say God loves me, God doesn't smile whenever he sees me wake up and say, oh, I'm so happy he's awake. No, the way God loves me is by extending mercy to me when I should be destined to hell. The way that God loves you is by extending mercy and grace to you through the means of the cross of Christ in which Jesus came and he died for you so that you could be forgiven, set free, redeemed, and born again so that through Christ... You and I can be set free, we can be alive, and we aren't destined to hell, which we deserve. So whenever we talk about the love of God, I want you to think about it a little bit differently. It's not a feeling. It's not that God's just so happy to see that you're awake. God's so happy you chose to follow him. God's just smiling because you worship him. God is a holy, righteous God, and his love is extended by the way he shows you mercy and grace. He provides for you, he redeems you, and he makes you alive again. So whenever we talk about the way that God loves us, the people are asking him, okay, God, how do you love us? What's the sign? I mean, if I love my wife, what do I do? I take care of her. We might bring her flowers on an occasion. I might go to her favorite restaurant. I might bring her a coffee from time to time. There are acts of service that I do for my wife to show my wife that I love her. What, I mean, what are some things that you do for your spouse to remind them that you love them? And, and there's tangible ways that we provide this, do we not? There's ways that I can show my wife that I love her, and there are things that if I fail to do, she will remind me that I've failed to do them. So you and I do acts of service. We go out of our way, we sacrifice. But God's way of demonstrating his love for his people was to remind them of a promise that he gave them a long time ago. So whenever we talk about God's love, God's love is always rooted in his promise. His promise all the way back to Abraham was to make Abraham a what? Father of many nations. 
So Abraham was to be the father of many nations, yet for 430 years his descendants lived in Egypt and were enslaved. But God said he loved them, and he would make him a great nation, and the father of a great nation, and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, but they're enslaved. So really, it looks like it contradicts itself. So what we need to understand about God's love is that his love is always attached to his promise, and his love is always extended by mercy and grace. Now, he can love you and give you the best spouse under the sun. Well, actually, he can't, because I got it. All right? I got her. But he can love you and open up the doors for you and provide you the greatest job to provide you for your family. He can love you and open up the doors for you and bless you and you have a beautiful home, a good paying job, a great retirement. Those are all provisions and blessings that he can give to you, but those are not the, the factors or the measurable markers of his love for me. So just because you have more than I may have, or just because I may have more than you have, doesn't mean God loves me more or loves me less. We are all equally deserving of the wrath of God, but through the cross of Christ, we are now equally saved from sin. So when we define God's love, it's not a feeling. It's not, I just, I just love so-and-so. It is that he lavishes mercy and grace. So whenever we talk about in our, in our life group, and if you don't have a life group Thursday nights, I invite everybody um, because I think it's important that you join a life group, get in the word. Thursday nights, we're going through the book of Judges. And I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the, next, in the other building. In the book of Judges, you read over and over. Every chapter seems to begin the same way, does it? The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them. And then they spent 20, 40, 80 years living in peace. And then guess what? That judge died and they did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And God heard their cry and he did what? He delivers them. Over and over and over again, God's love is demonstrated not by giving them everything they always want or by making them feel good or providing the easiest way of life. God's love was extending mercy and grace to people who were undeserving. So when, it, when Israel, time after time after time, would rebel against God because of his love being attached to his what? Promise. He saved them. If love was based on our performance, God would have wiped everyone out at the flood and no one else would have made it. If God's love was dictated by our performance, by the performance of man, as soon as Noah came off the boat, that would have been the last generation. Could you imagine how short the Bible would be if God's love was how we sometimes view it, that it's only extended when I'm living in complete and perfect obedience to him? The Bible would be like 12 pages long. God made man, man was dumb, God wiped them all out, the end, right? That's exactly what the Bible would be, because that's us. We fail God daily. But that doesn't mean whenever I fall short and I do something silly because guess what? I'm as imperfect as all of you are. Just because I'm up here doesn't mean I'm holier than thou and I never fall short. I fall short. I strive to not fall short as often as I can. But guess what? I do it. So whenever I fall short next, which may happen today, may happen tomorrow, it's going to happen. That does not mean that God now loves me less. It does not mean that God now has taken his love back and he doesn't feel like loving me as much. No, his love is connected to his what? 
promise. So for the people in Israel during the time of Malachi, he uses this story of their ancestors that they idolized, that they admired, that they read about, that they they, the scriptures are written about, and they passed on these stories. So these people are asking God, okay, how do you love us? What's your sign that you love us? And he says, I have loved you since the promise that I gave to your fathers. All the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I have loved my people. But then people say, well, but they were in Egypt. They were enslaved. They rebelled. They lived in sin. How has God loved them during all of that? Well, time after time, he delivers them. And when we talk about God's love, it's attached to his what? Promise. And I've said that how many times? I don't know, but I'm going to say it again. God's love is always attached to his promise. So whenever you fast forward to our day, and you wonder, well, what does Isaac and Jacob and Esau have to do with me? Well, it all goes back all the way to then. God said to Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now we go to our day and age, or let's go back 2,000 years ago. If you were to say, what's the most popular Bible verse in all the scripture, what would it be? John 3.16, right? Which says, from the mouth of Jesus, that God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his only son. So whoever believes in him would never perish, would never die, but have eternal life. Those are the words of Jesus. That is a promise from Jesus to us. So when we talk about God's love in today's world, we can associate it with the way we love things. That we get dopamine rushes or we get emotionally you know, high on things whenever we love certain things. That is not the love that God has for us. God's love is carried out in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because he promised to redeem his people. He promised to lavish upon his people mercy and grace. So whenever we thought, think about God loving us, God isn't smiling just because you fixed your hair and came to church today. God isn't just, oh, I'm so glad that they're worshiping. No, no. God is a holy, righteous God that demands that from us, but God loves us by extending us mercy and grace that we can't quite comprehend yet until one of these days we're in his presence and it all makes sense. So when you and I talk about the love of God, we have to understand it's always attached to his promise. His promise to the Israelite people was all the way back to Abraham, Father Abraham. He would be the father of many nations, right? And then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And now here we are, through the mouth of Christ, promised that whoever would believe in Jesus would never die but have eternal life. So when we talk about the love of God, we must also understand it's never earned based on my performance or yours, right? We're going to do wrong. We're going to fall short. We strive to be perfect, but we fail. We strive to be better, but we fail. So my holiness isn't defined by how much better I am than you. My holiness is defined by how I align with Christ, So when I live in holiness and I'm pursuing the Lord with all of my being, I am chasing after him. I am just walking in the love of God. Let's face it. None of us are deserving of his mercy and his grace. All of us have done wrong, right? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of those sin is what? Death. But there is a free gift from God which is eternal life found in whom? Christ. 
So when we talk about God demonstrating his love for us, we must know it's attached to his promise and it's always provided by him. And there is proof to his love. The proof to the people in Malachi's day was that he made Esau's descendants, his land lay waste in the hill country, and his heritage to the jackals of the desert. And then he goes on to say, if Edom says, which are the descendants of Esau, who would always oppose and oppress the Israel nation, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel by crushing our enemy. We see this carried out in today's world, do we not? Turn on the news, scroll on the websites. You're seeing Israel in battle against their opponents. Let's go all the way back now. A little history lesson. Does that work? Little little history lesson. You and I are descendants from Gentiles, but have been brought into the family of God. The Jews are truly through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, God promised to always bless the nation of Israel. Now, if you go all the way back to Abraham, God promised Abraham you're going to be the father of many nations, but in his 90s, he was yet to have a son. So his wife, Sarah, says, hey, uh, we've tried. Nothing's worked. We've tried. Nothing's worked. We've tried. Nothing's worked. Have a child with my servant Ishmael or my servant Hagar, and maybe that will be God's blessing for us. So if you know the story, Abraham has a child with Hagar, the servant of Sarah, and they named him Ishmael. Well, Sarah grows jealous of Ishmael and Hagar because she thought she was going to be promised to have the son that was going to be blessed by God, chosen by God, and then blessed for the generations. So she drives Hagar out of camp. Now, if you know the story, you will read that God actually speaks to Hagar and Ishmael on their way out, and he tells them that he will make them also a great nation. But here's the thing. There's always enmity between the two. Let's now go to our day. You see the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, both through their own lineage and then also brought into, adopted into the family of God by Christ. You have Jews and Christian. And then you go to the descendants of Ishmael and you have a great opponent in Islam. So the descendants of Ishmael are now under the religion or the name of Muslim or Islam. And then the descendants of Isaac... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now identified as either Jew or Christian. What has there always been since then? Always been conflict between them. Now, whenever we go to Jacob and Esau, there's always been conflict there. You and I live with a real enemy that always strives to bring opposition. And the promise was true for them just as it is for you and me today that we may not see it right now, but there's coming a day in which our Father in heaven will destroy our enemy. We may not see it right now. The one that's trying to destroy your marriage will be utterly destroyed. The one that is trying to remind you over and over and over that you are unlovable and there's no way that God could ever forgive you, he will be eternally shut up and sentenced. So we may not see it right now. 
and we may not experience the, you know, the, the Lord coming back right now. We may not see Satan shut up and cast away forever, but there's coming a day in which our eyes will see our enemy being crushed. So it doesn't matter. The enemies of the Israelite people are saying, hey, we will rebuild and we will be stronger. But God says, guess what? I'll crush that. So you and I can not just attach the love of God to his promise to save us and to protect us, but we can also attach his love to the promise that anything that comes against us as his people will be utterly destroyed. So any opposition that we face will be destroyed. It may not be right now. It may be 100 years from now. Something else I want to end with when we, when we read this, when we see that God proves his love for them based off the promise that he gave, but also the proof, the visible proof, is I want you to just think for just a moment, just a moment, the question that the people asked, how have you loved us? This can be asked in one way, desiring proof of that love. But it could also be asked by us today in a serious, humbled way of asking God, how in the world, how in the world have you loved us? I mean, how in the world have you loved someone or people like us? And I just want to remind you that your chosen by God, and because of that, you are loved. It's attached to his promise all the way back to Abraham through the lineage and then spoken by the, by the mouth of Jesus. His love is seen in the proof of his protection and his deliverance, but his love is also in the fact that you and I can ask that question, how in the world would you love us? How in the world could you love us. And let's be honest, if we were to pull all the curtains back and expose all that we are, we would probably be embarrassed to admit all that we've done, all that we've said, all that we've thought, and all that we struggle with. But we can proclaim with confidence that we are loved by God because he chose us. So I want to end with defining how does God choose you? How did God choose me? We read that God did not love Esau. There's a big debate in the world. People will say, well, God loves everybody the same. Well, when you read the text, it doesn't necessarily align with that. So how do we answer that question? Well, how, how do I know that I'm chosen? And how do I know that someone else isn't chosen? Let me just help you by answering that by telling you this. God chooses, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, and as Moses records in Deuteronomy chapter, 11, or chapter 7, that God shows compassion to those he shows compassion. Who is it? Whoever he says it is. God shows mercy and love to those that he chooses to show mercy and love to. I can't answer as to why God doesn't save everybody. So if God's love is attached to his promise of always delivering, protecting, and saving his people, and if we say God loves everybody, that would mean that everybody will be in heaven. But it's not the case. Not everyone will be in heaven. So we have to understand his mercy, his love, and his grace is given to those whom he chooses to. So I can... 
I can say that God loves me, not because I performed well, not because I did things good for him, but because I responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and bowed before him. So you can say whether you are chosen or not by the fact that you have been drawn by his spirit and by his word into a place of repentance and you are born again. Therefore, God chose me. He didn't choose me because I did so well. And then he said, yep, I'll take that one. No, he chose me in the, in the way that he died on the cross before I was even born to redeem me and to set me free from my sin. So if you respond to the gospel message, if you are a born again believer and follower of Christ, you can never doubt the love of God. He has chosen you. But if you are not a born again believer and you continue to reject the promptings of the Spirit of God, there may be a moment in time in which you breathe your last breath and you find yourself separated from the love of God. God's love is attached to His promise. It is always seen in His proof. And it is always, always handed to those He chooses. So I want to end with that. God chooses who He loves. It's a hard reality to think about people rejecting them when we want to see those people saved. People can reject the gift that Christ offers. So when we think about the way that God loves us, please do not think that it's all, all measured by the blessings that you have. Because I know some very poor people that are blessed and loved by God. I know some homeless people that are loved by God. I know some jobless people that are truly loved by God. So it's never measured in the way that we measure it by how how he's blessed me and how much I have in this life. The love of God is simply measured by the mercy and the grace that he has lavished upon me, someone who is filthy rags in his sight. If I could just be honest with you and tell you, You might disagree with me. We can talk about it later. You are not perfect. Can I tell you that? You are not even as good as you think you are. I read a study that tells us that when you and I see ourselves in the mirror, we see ourselves twice as attractive as we actually are. That's scary for some of us, right? Like, oh, (laughs) that's why I shaved my head. I had to fix it, right? Um. So we see ourselves twice as attractive as we actually are, but we also do that spiritually. We see ourselves as holier than we actually are. We see ourselves as not as much need of God's mercy and grace as we actually need it. If I could just be honest with you and tell you this, because I truly love you in the way that I care for your soul, you need the mercy and the grace of God daily. You need it. There's two things that break my heart, and I'll end with this not break my heart in a bad way, but kind of bad, because I was a messed up dude for a while, and, and I would be ashamed to tell you some of the things that I've either done or lived with or thought or, or tried, but two things break my heart and make me just weep in the presence of the Lord. One is my kids just singing songs of praise to God. They may not even sing in key. They may be a, a half beat behind, but just watching my girls sing songs, and not just my girls, all kids, just worshiping the Lord literally just breaks my heart, and I just cry, and I weep. But then second thing is to look at the life that I've lived 
and to think that God chose me anyway. How in the world does he love us? How in the world could he love us? I mean, think about it. Think about the way you've lived, the life that you've lived to this point in time, all the wrong you've done, all the mistakes that you've made, all the things that you've thought, all the words that you let go, all of the deeds that you've carried out. And God chose you. Because it's never about your performance. And I'm not giving you the justification to go live however you want and say, well, God's chosen me, I'm just going to live in that. Because then you would misunderstand me and the words of Christ. I'm telling you that God chose you. And his love for you is always attached to his promise for you, which is to redeem you and to save you from your sin. So if I could encourage you, I would tell you, never question the love of God. If you have been chosen, if you are a born-again believer, follower of him, you have no reason to question whether God loves you or not. He does. Let us pray.